77. Which model 77 Subaru? Subaru wagon. Wagon. Okay. I had a hatchback. Yeah. Front wheel drive only. Dark green, black vinyl interior, no AC. Do the do the math. It was uh, ours was uh, kind of the champagne silver uh, front wheel uh-huh. and four wheel, hang glider racks on it, uh, uh-huh. tape deck. I didn't even have a. Def- I didn't have a tape. I had an AM/FM, uh, and um, that got pinched. That at, before the smoke cleared, before I traded that car, <laughs> someone broke into it in, in on Capitol Hill, parked on the street, and not did they. I don't know if I must have had a, an AM/FM cassette in it by that time. I don't. Yeah, I guess I did, but they literally ripped um, that hanging down part of the dashboard where the radio and the, and the AC vents are. Literally ripped that just the fuck off to get to the radio. And, <laughs> I, I drove it. I, you know, by that time I was like, you know, fuck this, and I drove it like that for a couple more years. Um, but uh, yeah, I, there, yeah. Do radios still get stolen from cars? Oh yeah, I don't. Oh, I, I would presume so. Yeah, I oh, don't yeah. know why. I, I, you know, I, I remember yeah, I, when we were younger. Just as you described, you know, it was a, bit, you know, it was a very tempting target. I, I in fact got my one of my cars stolen and broken into, and the radio stolen. Yeah. Um, it's maybe I'm just not part of the demographic, but it seems like it, aftermarket radios used to be a bigger thing than they are now. I don't know. I, I don't know either. Um, that car got broken into two or three times uh, on Capitol Hill, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, um, the only other time since then I've been broken into uh, was. Um, 90 or 91 uh i had the taurus fairly brand it was almost brand new at the time and it was parked in a parking garage um and uh someone smashed a window and um grabbed a uh bag phone cellular phone mm-hmm. um and um that was i think that's the last time i've been broken into uh been ripped off that was again 90 uh probably 91 I'm I'm still getting my brain around Jeb driving a Subaru. <laughs> so if 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 aftermarket radios are a tempting target in cars, is there are there a lot of break-ins in airplanes for uh, aftermarket radios? Because there's obviously a lot of you know. A lot is a relative term. Um, there is, I would say, a constant low hum if for lack of a better description, of uh, avionics thefts out there, yes. Um, uh, unattended airports, um, late at night, tied down, or even in hangars with, you know, flimsy locks. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not aware of um, any, um, you know, rash of, of thefts, but periodically you'll hear of them and uh, i know the doesn't dave doesn't the aea have some kind of a, a stolen avionics database thing? i think aopa some, and the aviation does. the aviation theft bureau uh-huh does mm-hmm. that yeah uh-huh does uh, an avionics listed i think aea does work with them on that yeah something aea's got some connection there mm-hmm and 
I wonder, are, is, a, is an avi avi aircraft avionics device sufficiently identifiable that it could be traceable? Absolutely. It's got a serial Absolutely. number. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, it's but, it's, but it's physical. You've got to put your hands on it and look at the number. There's a story in the news the other last couple of days about a guy whose Mac, Macintosh laptop got stolen. He had, he had installed the right kind of software in it. I su saw that. Such that he was taking pictures of the thief in his home. Um, mm -hmm. The guy was sitting in his on his couch, and uh, it's a really scary picture of the thief sitting in front of the laptop camera with no shirt on, and Lord knows what below the frame is going on. But uh, I wonder <laughs> how traceable uh, aircraft. Typing with one hand, eh? Yeah, well, I don't <laughs> want to go there, uh, especially on a family podcast. Um, is uh, is an is the break in of an aircraft, uh, you know, and the the probably you know not very you, neat. You mean the felony, federal felony, breaking of an aircraft? Well, I, I, regardless of what what form the law breaking part of it falls under, um, you know, the, the the there's damage done to an aircraft when it's sure. broken into. Sure, is that reportable in any way? How how does it and what how does that affect the airworthiness of the aircraft? You know, in terms of its certification and its logbooks and things like that. Yeah, it, it all depends, of course. Yeah, um, right. thinking. Um, oh. Um, Thing, think about a Cessna 172, which is, is all we're all relatively familiar with. Uh, you've got you know a fairly you know all things considered fairly flimsy door when compared, say, to to a modern automobile. Um, you've got a piece of plexiglass in there uh, as a window that um, is probably maybe an eighth inch thick, maybe maybe not even that, maybe uh, you know depends. Um, relatively uh, um, thick. And windshield also. Um, generally, what you see is someone uh, who, who really, really, really wants to get into that airplane uh, using a crowbar or um, uh, some other uh, leverage levering tool uh, to just either pry open the door or break the lock on the hand on, on the door handle itself. Oh, and the locks uh, are notoriously easy to screw the, up. The locks are, are notoriously easy to screw with. Um, and, you know, there's a school of thought that says um, that's not a bad thing in that um, you're going to do, do less damage when someone does break into it. The, the, another school of thought is, you know, put heavier duty locks on it. And, you know, maybe a, a prospective thief will go somewhere else to the next airplane because they didn't want the, the hassle of uh, dealing with that. The heavier duty lock, though, will create probably, probably, depending, uh, more damage uh, when, the, uh, when the door is pried open. So you've, you've kind of got a balancing act there. There's a, a line of, of uh, or a manufacturer of locks. I think it's Medeco, M-E-D-E-C-O, um, that uh, have been fairly popular as upgrades over the years. Um, but to answer specifically Jack's question, uh, yeah, you can. Not only will you damage the door, uh, you can also damage the door frame, and presumably all of this is covered by insurance, of course. But I would think, unless there's some uh, specific, uh, I don't know about specific, but unless there's some mode of the damage that you you can close the door and, and secure the door and this kind of thing. Uh, I would guess it pretty much grounds the airplane. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I would not be particularly interested, for example, if someone broke into my airplane, um, being a debonair, being only ha having only one cabin door, 
and some of those doors, at least the older ones like mine, are, are somewhat, I won't say notorious, but somewhat prone to popping open at, at, at uh, when you don't want them to, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be particularly keen to be flying the airplane until the whole thing's repaired. Problem is, if you damage the door frame, you could be talking real big bucks. Mm-hmm. Labor, parts, the whole, especially labor, to repair the door frame and, and put everything back like it was. That may or may not be uh, economically feasible, depending on, on the airplane and depending on what the insurance company wants to do. Really? And, yeah. A lot of a lot of the avionics are are only held in place with these little uh, I, I don't want to call them thumb screws, but they're little socket screws that run from the front of the radio where you can put the the Allen wrench in it to a little mount in the back. That's all that holds them in there. Right. Sure. You know, they they sit in right, a tray. That's right. And a lot of those Allen, a lot of those yeah, a lot of those latches are like quarter turn. Um, yeah, a lot of them uh, are quarter turn. Uh-huh. And you don't want to if, – if a guy's stealing the avionics for resale or reuse, the last thing you want to do is, is damage that unit you're trying to steal. So you're not going to go into the panel with a crowbar or, or you know, a, a, a hammer or something like that try to jury it out. It, it doesn't take much knowledge and it doesn't take much time to put the Allen wrench in there, turn that, whatever it takes, usually a quarter turn, sometimes uh, a, a little more pull the unit out, and some of them disconnect from the wiring harness as soon as you pull them out. Others will pull out the wiring connector with them. You unplug it and, and go on your merry way. Uh, and getting into the airplane itself is usually where the worst damage is done. Mm-hmm. Uh, then replacing you know, then replacing it is, 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 is sometimes fun. Yeah, where what's the motivation for stealing these things? I mean, I would think that you know, given all the paperwork involved in adding electronics to your airplane, um, people would be disinclined to to buy stolen goods. I mean, uh, well, in the in the U.S., there's certainly uh, a lot of paperwork involved in adding something like this to your airplane if you're doing it above board. Uh, if you're not, um, then you know who, who really cares. Yeah. But I think the other thing here is a lot of these uh, stolen radios would be going overseas. Yeah. D- yeah does overseas not have the same kind of paperwork requirements that we do in the U.S.? Depends on where you're going overseas. Yeah. Uh, Europe, okay. uh, uh, sure. Australia, absolutely. Um, um, Asia, South America, Central America, perhaps less so. Yeah. Well, Africa. the flip, flip side of it is even if they adhere to the paperwork requirements for installing it in an airplane, uh, how do they know that it's stolen without the serial number being reported in the U.S. and then made available to the authorities there to check against a master list? You know, they, uh, oh, I got this second hand from, uh, from a guy whose airplane was trashed. Okay, okay. Uh, do you get the manual with it? No, it was destroyed by fire. Uh, well, we can download that online. We'll get that puppy popped in there, logbook entry, and you're on your way. Yeah, but if you buy... You know, if you buy a uh, you know panel mount GPS out of somebody's trunk, you're going to be thinking twice, aren't you? You know, I mean, sure, sure. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, the, but the flip side is, you know, a lot of uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not. No one's going to be buying a panel mounted. Well, nobody. Uh, a few people would would um, buy a uh, panel mount GPS out of someone's trunk, but they wouldn't um, necessarily think a whole lot about it. Buying it off of uh, say Craigslist or or someplace else. How to trade um, a plane? How to, yeah, exactly. I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, at an air, at a, at a, you know, a booth at an air show, something like that. Um, 
Uh, it's a murky area. I mean, uh, yeah, no, there, I know. The, the thing is, there's a there's a a market certainly for um, uh, used avionics, stolen avionics. Um, but um, unless you're, you know, a wizard, um, or you're just replacing something that's already been stolen, or something that's failed, or you just want a backup unit, or something like that, you, someone's got to install the thing. Someone's got to do the work. Um, uh, and sign it off, at least here in the U.S., um, and uh, make it all work and play together. Um, I don't have that technical know-how. Yeah. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good with stuff, but I don't have the the, uh, the know-how to make all that stuff work. Right. But you, you, you can order, have custom built a wiring harness to connect A, B, and C. Sure. Assuming that there's no complications when you connect A, B, and C. Uh, the people that make the wiring harness for you will never see the units you're going to put in. Will never know what the serial numbers are. They're just supplying right. you a wiring harness for mm-hmm. A, B, and C. Yeah. If you're building your own airplane, uh, you know you, you can do your own wiring harness. If you, like Chip said, you got the technical know-how. Otherwise, you can buy wiring harnesses for that stuff from vendors who will make it up for you. Uh, you know it's. There's windows where this stuff slips through the cracks, some of it domestically, some of it, a lot of it internationally, we suspect. Right. It, but it happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and finally, so this sort of makes me wonder about, um, and now we're back talking about the United States. Uh, has anybody ever done any research or studies uh, to determine how many aircraft are flying in the U.S. that are undocumented? They're sort of off the system, you know, not have the proper paperwork, not have... You know what I'm talking about? Is Not it, exactly, no. You don't know what I'm talking about, or you don't, or they don't know the number. You I know, I, I mean, people who are flying airplanes that don't have up-to-date logs that are basically not officially legally airworthy. I mean, I, I remember years ago I was talking to a guy um, at, at at my home airport, and we were just chatting, and and, I, and I'm relatively certain at the time we were talking that this guy was a licensed proper pilot, but he was reminiscing about the old days, and he said he used to fly a. a, a a, uh, a air coupe, he said, for 10, 15 years without a license, and, uh, you know, the airplane was just kind of, you know, he kept it going. It wasn't, you know, didn't have all its paperwork in order. Right, he never got ramp checked. And he, yeah, and, he, and because, you know, it's all a random thing, and you don't have to, you know, routinely improve. Almost nobody ever does get ramp checked. Yeah, so huh. I'm wondering Curious. if anybody's ever ever done any sort of research to try and determine how much that how often that happens how many airplanes are there flying in the u.s that don't have that that i mean i'm not talking like just kind of have a a missed entry in the logbook you know that are technically not airworthy i'm talking about you know just don't even care you know like they're you know it's a plane that they fly off of a farm in the, or a ranch in the middle of you know wyoming and and you know that, that kind would, of thing that would that would take a pretty massive inventory at some point you know, sending people out, it'd be like requiring everybody to bring their cars in for auto inspection once a year. Yeah. But we don't do that. Right. Yeah. The annual inspection right. is the closest we get to that. And maybe you get a postcard from the FAA. You're, maybe you're one of the 33% that gets a postcard and says, by the way, would you mind telling us what your flying activity was over the last year and what you're flying right now? And And that's pretty much the limit of it because, by and large, most of us are fairly honest people with a fairly sincere and survival instinct, and we abide by the rules. We self-police to a very, very high degree. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's two ways to do this aviation thing. There's the right way and the wrong way. And the right way um, 
is to comply with the rules, whether they're written or 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 um, passed down from generation to generation, as it were. Um, but you got to do this. You got to do these things right. Now, you know, the flip side of which is uh, the guy with uh, the cub uh, at, based at, at the Wyoming ranch, uh, as Jack described, uh, who every now and then <coughs> uh, goes out and looks at his his, his property and and uh, uh, counts his cattle and, and never really goes anywhere else, uses mo gas in the thing. Um, it's only him. Um, I don't get too worked up about it, you know whether or not he's missed an annual inspection every now and then. Yeah. I mean, I'm not uh, worked up about yeah. it either. I'm just kind of curious if anybody ever had any came up with any kind of numbers about how often that happens. I've never. FAA, I've never. FAA would be the, the, uh, the go-to place for that. And I'm sure they have uh, some enforcement numbers on – um, you know, spot checks and and things like that, but there's really no hard and fast uh, data out there on whether a given airplane is likely to be out of annual or not. Yeah, interesting. Now, years ago, there were some people floating some fairly creative, shall we say, theories about limits on federal authority. Uh, you know, and some of them were selling these ideas that uh, if you did this and this, you could, you know, the, the IRS couldn't touch you. Uh, if you did this and this, you never had to pay income taxes. One of those that floated around at this same time with this kind of semi-anarchistic attitude was that the FAA couldn't touch you if you took off and landed from your own property and never touched down anywhere else. That's right. I'm in my air, damn it. My airspace. That's right. And then somebody said, well, but they, they even regulate balloons that are tethered over 150 feet. Well, okay. As long as you don't get higher than 150 feet and take off and land from your own property. <laughs> yeah, they, well, there you, you go. Know, it's like, well, okay, on a practical basis, yeah, maybe you're right. They can't touch you because the uh, chances of them dropping by your property and coming on it uh, because of this, unless you scare somebody and get reported, they're pretty remote. On the other hand, do they have the authority to do something about it if they catch you? Oh, not only yes, but hell yes. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 238 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house That's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got now. Sky riders they, now. They, they, does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear land turkey special ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and alpha We're recording this episode on Friday morning, June 3rd, 2011, and uh, at least I think it's that's the right date. I'm, it's like... I, I, yeah, I know. All I know is it's Friday morning. Yeah, so, you know, really. Uh, let's see now. Joining I'm me not here, happy about uh, it. Well, you, yeah, okay. Who, who, once again, whose idea was this? I wasn't mine. Uh, yeah, that's Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Good morning, Jeb. How are you doing this morning? I'm I'm fairly well. Uh, busy week and, and busy weekend and, and whatnot, but the sun is shining, the birds are singing, the pool water is warm, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the alligators haven't been a big problem lately. So, uh, uh, Glad to hear it. Glad to hear yeah. it. It's 9 a.m. 
a.m. where you are, or just well, it's nine thirty now. But uh, we started this at nine a.m. Oh, we started at nine. Twenty-five minutes to get uh, to this point, but yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. But who's counting? But right? who's counting? This is UCAP time. That's right. Yeah, UCAP time. That's right. Yeah, there we go. Right. Well, there's a title right there. We got to write that down. UCAP time. Uh, and that other voice is Dave Higdon. Join us from uh, Wichita, Kansas, where it's eight twenty-five in the morning. How you doing, David? Uh boy, I got you know. Three or four gallons of coffee here, uh, waiting for the Dunkin' Donuts to come back from the store. Uh, those are going to be funny-looking donuts because they're going to have to have legs to get here. Yeah. I was going to say, there's a National Donut Day coming up. Is that like today, tomorrow, something like that? No, not really. National Donut Day? National Donut Day. Supposedly, I, Krispy Kreme and, and Dunkin' Donuts are are uh, doing some kind of promo. I don't know about free donuts or something like that. I, I, hey, what you know... What do I know? I, uh, <laughs> I know. You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a police officer, right? Right. <laughs> well, if a donut shows up, we'll give it a home. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it would be an endangered species around here. but um. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you this morning from the 20th story of the luxurious Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, where Ooh. it's 625, or now 27, in the morning. And uh, um, How do you make on, a Venetian not, not blind? The, Ooh, I, I give up how? Oh, never Poke mind. Poke him in the eye. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm out here for a uh, big uh, trade show that my company is helping to put on. And, uh, uh, you know, we normally po- record the podcast in the in the e- early evening, but uh, the, I'm not able to do it until about 6 or 7 o'clock local time here in, in Las Vegas, which would be like uh, 9 and 10 o'clock back where you guys are. So that's not going to work. Uh, so we're doing this thing first thing in the morning. As we've done for long, long time listeners will know we've done this for like four years now. So, uh, so we're back again. Every, every now and then. Yeah, we're back right, again in, in Las Vegas. Sadly, we've moved from the Mandalay Bay Hotel, which was right across the street from McCarran International Airport, uh, to the Venetian, which is more in the center of the Strip. It's actually a better hotel to be staying in from, you know, kind of living point of view, you know, uh, amenities and things going on nearby. But we don't have McCarran Airport out my window this time. So, uh, well, and that, that that was a that was a in true. Las Vegas style. That was a roll of the dice that you got a window at the Mandalay Bay that looked in that direction. Well, it, it wasn't. It, it was fortunate. It was not a roll of the dice. I asked each time. I said, "Please give me, ah. a, please give me a room." And I kind of always got the feeling that it's like, "Oh, good, we got a guy who wants one of these win, these, these right, rooms right. that nobody else wants." You know, right on the noisy side. Yeah, you know, and I was just thrilled. I'm like, "Oh yeah, cool. I get a chance to watch the Area 51 airplanes come and go." Hey, but, Marge, we got another one of those airport nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so, one uh, year in Vegas, Jim and I were out there for uh, HAI, I believe it right, was. Right. And were you and I in the same hotel? Uh, I it don't was recall. It was I right. Don't. Mine was right next to McCarran. Uh-huh. It was right on one of the arrivals, and it was an actual hotel only. There was no casino, and it huh. was the strangest thing to walk in the front door to check in and not be inundated with the. With the, the the flashing lights and chimes and clunking sounds of all the the gambling machines and the slot machines and all that going on, it's kind of like I could get used to this. See, yeah. I don't know. That's not. That's that's exactly the opposite of why I like coming to Las Vegas. I just like the glitz. I mean, it's, it's oh, a- I I do too. But I've never been. You know, when you're hauling a load of of, of gear. Which we were on that trip, mm-hmm. you know, clothes for two weeks, uh, camera bag, computer bag, and all that stuff. 
that that long on some of these hotels, very lengthy trek from when you get in the front door through gambling areas to where you finally get to the check-in desk. Mm-hmm. It's not something I've always been been much of a fan of. Yeah, no. And although the Venetian is different in that regard, the Venetian has the the uh, the, the check-in desk is pretty much right inside the motor entrance. You know, the place where cabs drop you off and whatnot. Uh, and, that's not. Um, and uh, you do not have to make your way through the casino to get to the registration desk here. Um, you do have to go through the casino to get from the reg- registration desk to the elevators. So they get you uh, eventually. And, and there was no casino in this place. Yeah. Uh, there Period. are a handful of those, you know, but uh, but obviously that's not the standard out here. So uh, anyways. The other thing that's interesting about this hotel in terms of this noise you're talking about, um, and maybe other hotels do this. I don't have a lot of experience with a lot of different hotels, but – um, Mandalay Bay did not do what I'm about to describe. Venetian does, and that is that um, they have security guards at the entrance to each of the elevator bays um, on the public levels. Uh, and you actually have to show your room key in order to get to the elevators. And uh, it's really interesting because of the change in about a 20-foot you know, span from the public area where there's just all kinds of people and lots of energy and lots of excitement to suddenly you're into the elevator bays and suddenly it's gotten very quiet and very peaceful. You know? and, uh, um, but they, uh, I guess it's a security thing. They don't want that because they invite a lot of general public, obviously, into the casino and into the shopping uh, plaza and the malls and, and, and so forth. And, uh, so yeah, I've, I've encountered that overseas. Uh, I can't say I've encountered it in Vegas, but it would be something I'd welcome. Yeah. So I'm in Vegas. Uh, I'm hoping I'm here. I've only been here about three or four days. I'm going to be here for almost two weeks total when all is said and done. Uh, things are pretty crazy right now in terms of my work, but next week it quiets down a little bit and I'm hoping to have a chance to visit with, uh, uh, Mike and Elizabeth Daniels uh, of the uh, Mile High Flyers podcast, uh, who live here in town, and uh, maybe even do some flying. But uh, uh, cool. you know, we'll see. We'll see. So, uh, so that's it. I'm in Vegas again, and uh, uh, you know. And, and what are you going to do for the weekend? Uh, there's no such thing as a weekend. We, we're, we're 14 straight <laughs> days of work. All right, 14 unbelievable. 10 hour days if we're lucky. All right, uh, so. Uh, they keep it us sounds busy. like Oshkosh. Yeah, no, that's actually not totally true. Like I said, once the show gets up and running, our work involves setting it up and tearing it down, and uh, a little bit of support during the show, but mostly setting it up and tearing it down. So once the show opens, uh, things get quieter, and we actually do get like half days off and things like that. <laughs> See what they've, they've they've got me trained to the point where I feel like getting a half day off is a great deal. Ah well. Airplanes, what's going on? Uh, who put this up here? One of you guys put up something about the Florida Aviation Trades Association. What's the deal here? Jeb, you put this on here. I did not. Dave put that uh, on Dave, there. Dave put that on there. The oh, okay. Florida Aviation Trades Association Conference and Trade Show is coming up at the Ritz-Carlton in Sarasota. Uh-huh. Later this month, June 13, 14, 15. And closing day, they're having a public day to invite in people from the non-aviation public. To, uh, there's a breakfast and some speakers to kind of uh, help introduce aviation to non-aviation people, which hmm. uh, you don't see a lot at trade shows, them opening up their doors to the great un- un- unwashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I put this on here basically as kind of a, a, a brief... Salute to you guys and uh, to them, I should say, 
and uh, uh, tip off to our our uh, listeners who might be in the neighborhood that that would be a great place to bring some friends who don't know anything about airplanes and are always wondering about why you know aviation GA in particular is important. So uh, you know, check into it. The link will be on the website. But Wednesday, June fifteenth. They're having breakfast with the exhibitors, and it's open to the public. Why general aviation means business, and the public is invited to attend the session where they will, that's 9 to 10 after the breakfast, to explain and to learn how GA affects their everyday lives and why it's important to uh, uh, communities around the country, not just in Florida. Cool. Yeah, this, I this think is that's a, good a smart idea. Yeah, yeah. Jeff? is a is a really good organization. Um, I've, I've been familiar with them for several years, even before I uh, moved to Florida. And uh, this is a good event. There, there are other events like this that, that crop up uh, uh, from time to time, ranging from, uh, you know, the, the, um, the small community um, airport open house to uh, larger ones. I know uh, NBAA uh, for several years um, did um, <clears throat> some upper upper scale uh, show and tell uh, events for uh, local business people uh, scattered throughout the country. Um, you could you could look at you know the NBA annual meeting and convention. You could look at uh, eBase and other events that NBA sponsors around the world as as similar in in focus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Explaining uh, uh, the benefits of general aviation to uh, people who might not be familiar with it, yeah. and and the trade Florida Aviation Trade Association they've been doing this a long time. Yeah, they have. I mean, this is their sixty fifth. Uh, I think they may even predate NBAA uh, yeah. by a year. Or so, uh, and you know, it's mechanics, uh, shops, technicians, the folks that make the stuff click. Uh, as opposed to a pilot organization specifically. And uh, I'd love to see more of this and and love the idea, like Jeb was talking about, other outfits, airport appreciation days. We've seen some of those come and go here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, One of the best ways for aviation to grow, one of the best ways for it to survive in, uh, in communities that might wonder why. Well, like my hometown in Indiana, they got their shorts in a knot some of them over the airport spending $40,000, $40,000. Now, this is a big airport with about 300-some-odd airplanes there. Yeah. Several businesses base their business jets there, employs hundreds of people, uh, handles uh, thousands of flights in and out every year for businesses in the area and in Louisville, Kentucky. And $40,000 seems like... A horrible thing to be wasting on those rich guys that just go around to play golf. The horror. horror. You know, and so I I wrote a letter out there saying, you know, it's about time you guys did something about this because this is deranged to be fighting (laughs) over that money. To be fighting and saying that, well, they shouldn't be spending any money on this when the tax revenues and the business revenues and all that go so far beyond the county's meager. And this was for stuff like cutting the grass. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's a big airport. There's a lot of grass to cut there several times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stupid really burns sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really does. It really does. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't know if it, it's not exactly related, but it, it makes me think of another story. It's not on the list. Um, I saw a piece, and I, I don't have it in front of me now, but from my memory, I think it's EAA uh, is among. It sounds like all the alphabet organizations are 
are doing something about the presidential TFRs or trying, um, and they've apparently petitioned or written letters to the uh, to the feds, uh, trying to get the you know it sort of kind of falls into the category of of you know general aviation is important treat us a little better here you know um, there there are you know jobs for the community and uh, um, you know it's you know when you shut them down for I mean again this maybe maybe what I'm doing in a backhanded way is coming circling back around to my rant about the uh, Martha's Vineyard DFR for the president every summer I don't know I it's I won't I won't well, vote. It, it, and and it's a valid point uh, and, and it's worth pointing out that. These TFRs uh, today uh, exist for these areas with a good deal more flexibility than when they first came onto the scene. And everything GA would be closed down at the affected airports, period, end of story for the duration. Right, right. I wonder whatever happened to that guy out in, I think it was like the San Francisco or Oakland area, uh, who tried to sue the... I don't know the president or the uh, the Democratic Party or something like that because a, a campaign related presidential TFR shut down his FBO for a couple of days and he wanted the lost revenue back. And uh, you remember that story we talked about? It. I, I, I remember that. It's been a, I guess uh, I don't know if it was. It's been a while. I, it was a while yeah, ago, and he almost certainly say, got nothing out of it. But I'm sure, he, I'm sure he didn't. Um, you know, suing the Democratic Party for malpractice wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> Whole other topic. Um, yeah, yeah, that's for our other podcast. That's yeah, that's exactly for our other podcast. Right. Thank you. Oh, I've trained you guys so well. It's good. Okay. <laughs> pa- Pavlov is is t- turning over in his grave. Ding, <laughs> ding. Where's my um, dog? <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, I, I'm sorry, Jack. I just cannot get too worked up about a Martha, Martha's Vineyard TFR. I know you can't. Uh, I'm the only one. Have, having lived in the, uh, having lived within the the, the area for more than six years, when all this nonsense, all this blowing snow came came streaming. I, you know, but that uh, as bad as that is in D.C., that should not make it okay to do it on even a smaller scale anywhere else. Well, that's it's wrong it's, everywhere. It's, it's camel's nose under the tent, and and uh, um, you know, I, I remember sitting in a meeting back in I guess '03, just as we were getting ready to, uh, you know, do that little thing in Iraq that was just going to take a few, a few months, uh, and how you know, told told how uh, oh well, this is just going to be a temporary thing, uh, uh, and all this, and I'm you know, come on, give me a break. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um, and it's and and eight years later, it's still temporary. Yeah, well, all all of it is still there, and it's yeah. it's, and it's not gotten. It, it, it's in some areas for, for some reasons, uh, it has gotten better in the sense that rather than just erect a no-fly zone and and you know say no to any uh, any exemptions or or uh, uh, any any modifications to it. Um, there have been in I don't know the last three or four years some relaxation uh, of some of this at least on a on a case by case or I should say location by location basis. Um, some GA operations have been allowed to to conduct uh, themselves, whereas in the past there was simply no uh, GA operation. Yeah, no, I acknowledge that they're they're working towards finding ways to soften these things up a little bit. It's not as hard and fast as it used to be, but it's still too... It's, 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 it's still, uh, agreed. It's, it's still maddening, yeah. and it still uh, seems like 
so much uh, overkill. And yeah, it's it's still onerous. It's still nonsense. It's still uh, make work. It's still mission creep, and it's still something that I will be exercised about. Uh, until the day after I need a background check to rent a rider truck. There you go. Yep. This is the story you did put. I was confused. This is the story. So you uh, made reference to tornadoes, Jeb. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know exactly when you put this on our list, but um, you know, one of the bit of excitement for some of us from uh, New England out here in Las Vegas uh, here at the show uh, over the last couple of days was that you know, and we're here, you know, you know, just kind of you know, blithely or however you want to characterize it, uh, working on our show uh, indoors, hardly knowing what's going on in Las Vegas, let alone what's going on around the world, and suddenly we start getting text messages and 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 twitters from our friends back in uh, the East Coast that there are tornadoes in Massachusetts. Uh, and, uh, no joke, there was a tornado, four people died and a handful of others are still in pretty bad shape. Um, and uh, a lot of damage was done. And, uh, and your question was what is, if a tornado hit a, uh, uh, uh basically a, one of the traffic control centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd seen this, this question asked elsewhere as well. Uh, uh, maybe that's the link that you're pointing us to. What, what's, what's this, what's the deal, Jeb? Well, um, this is a, uh, an article out of, uh, I guess, ABC News uh, on their website, um, dated uh, in early May, uh, relative to um, a tornado or tornado, uh, excuse me, a series of tornadoes that went through the uh, Atlanta area back around that time. Um, and uh, it, as it turns out, uh, one of them uh, came very, 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 perhaps too close to the Atlanta Air Route Traffic Control Center, which is physically located in uh, Hampton, Georgia, which I believe is um, slightly west uh, and, uh, um, and uh, south, I believe, of the, uh, of the metro area. I, I mean, obviously, I could, could Google that. But um, the punchline is, um, in this particular instance, it, the, a tornado pretty much had that facility boresighted, and uh, there was a partial evacuation uh, of certainly of non-essential personnel from the facility, um, and certainly uh, you know in, in the aftermath uh, you know everything came out all right. There was there was no real outage. Um, uh, ATC services continued to be provided, etc. Uh, but it kind of sort of raises the question of what if one of those artsies took a direct hit. Whether it was a tornado, whether it was a hurricane or an earthquake, something like that, uh, and was literally out of commission uh, for some period of time. You know, certainly, we, we wouldn't want to see any loss of life or any injuries or anything like that. But how would the, the airspace be handled uh, until the in the period during which the, the facility was brought back up to full full operation? Um, I don't know, and it kind of sort of depends on on uh, you know the extent of the damage, what was damaged. Um, whether whether the uh, the radar uh, can be remoted to other facilities, things like this, but it's a very interesting question. And I'm not sure, based on on the routing that this this kind of thing came to me, uh, people who who have worked in ATC for a number of years and and know how these things work, I'm not sure there's a really good answer. Uh, uh, yeah, I I'm really wondering about it myself because you know, and and the uh, the uh, you know the air traffic control system from a technical standpoint is notoriously fragile, and uh, 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'm not We've sure seen... I could go with that notoriously fragile on the infrastructure side of it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the flow control, uh, the flow itself, that's very fragile. I mean, the, the rhythm of it is very easily disrupted. But the infrastructure itself is, is, is somewhat hardened really? uh, okay. to protect I... itself against weather. I mean, there are backup power systems at these places. I can show you where the backup power uh, operation is uh, sited at a couple of control towers here in the area where power to the, the normal power to the facility goes down. They've got their own backup power to, to keep them online for a while. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to keep controllers in the tower at mid-continent if there's a tornado steaming across the airport. But, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff has uh, uh, redundant passages for the communications. Some of that stuff doesn't always work exactly like it should because it is complicated as hell. Right. Uh, all the communications links. But they, they, you know, it's not like my house, where if the power goes down, I get on the phone, the cell phone, and hope that the cell tower is still working, and call West Star Energy and say, send a truck. Right. Uh, you know, we, we've talked a lot in the past about the fact that the flight service operation has been increasingly centralized over the last 20 years. Um, it, is the same thing happening to the centers and the area control facilities? Is that what we're talking about here? Or uh, are they distributed around the country in a good way? Or are they trying to centralize those as well? Well, the in-route centers are still uh, located fairly diversely. Atlanta's got one. Indianapolis has got one. Memphis has got one. Cleveland, uh, Kansas City. Uh, yeah, there's, there's there's twenty or so of them scattered around the U.S. and that and that's we're just talking about the the Conus, uh, not about Alaska or Hawaii or right. anything. Right. Yeah. Um, and and there's you know a list uh, as it were on the on the FAA's website. So yeah, I mean there's there's um, uh, a lot of redundancy, and and in fact you might think of of you know the ATC system somewhat as like the internet. It kind of self corrects and and routes around. Uh, uh, um, Open shorts, for example, uh, or open uh, uh, open circuits. Um, uh, open shorts is another thing altogether, not for a family <laughs> podcast. <right here. laughs> I was thinking dead shorts and open circuits all at the same time. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> and, and, uh, and there's there's probably even more uh, um, discussion on a different podcast for those terms. Uh, uh, having said all of that. Uh, <laughs> Dave's absolutely correct. There's, <laughs> it's too early in the morning to be laughing like that. Um, um, but Dave's absolutely correct. There's a number of facilities, and uh, uh, they are geographically diverse, um, not just for practical reasons, but also from the standpoint of being damage tolerant. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, then you've got you know Tracon's uh, regional approach control facilities that. Uh, um, I, again, by design and by necessity, are, are regionally and geographically diverse. Yeah, um, like uh, re remember the big, you know, the big silly brouhaha uh, back a few months ago. We talked about it a little bit. A controller asleep in the tower 
at National Airport. Yeah. Washington I'll... National Airport. Oh, my God. Those planes landed without control. Okay. Ah. Yeah, right. So the except system has did. many levels except of redundancy. Yes. Except yeah, did. Right. Uh, the, the, Potomac, Potomac Center could see that area. Potomac Center was in communications. Potomac Center handled the, the, the flights. Yeah. Yeah, it but, was but, never, never, ever uh, a, a level of risk above a hangnail. Right. Right. But, uh, minor, minor comment. Potomac's a tracon, not a, not a center. Uh, but uh, um, the, the, I think the real question right. here right. has to do with um, if, a, if an artsy was taken out mm-hmm. um, by natural disaster of some kind, um, are, are the um, – does everything flow into that center? Um, the, the, you, certainly you have radar facilities all around um, – uh, that, that geographic area funneled into that the, the data from which is funneled into that center um, is that easily remoted to other centers? Mm-hmm. Is there a central f- switching facility, for example, that is in the center, or is it remotely located away from the center itself? Um, how does that data get rerouted to adjacent centers uh, so that they, in fact, can pick up the slack? Uh, what about the workload? Um, that is generated at those new at those adjacent centers. Who picks up that slack? Do the do the controllers get in their cars and and drive up to Indianapolis? They drive down to Jacksonville. How, how does that how does that work? Mm-hmm. And uh, all of those are, are you know kind of intriguing questions to kind of get an answer to. Hmm. But well, it, on a trip, you know, I, I, uh, hopefully on, on we won't have to figure it out the hard way. Yeah. On a on a flight between uh, Wichita and the Louisville, Kentucky area, some years ago. Uh, we played slice and dice with some weather along the way. And at one point, I changed altitudes to avoid weather and went from talking to a tracon to talking to center. Not, not, not deliberately, but coincidentally, at the same time, that tracon was evacuating its people because of a level four, level five thunderstorm bearing down on the building. And they were worried that it would, you know, transform into tornadic weather and, and, and do worse damage. Uh, had I not changed altitude, Indianapolis Center could have still seen me. Uh, the computer would have had to be, if I understand the technology correctly or the way it works, their computer wouldn't have shown me at the lower altitude simply because the computer was programmed not to show targets that were being handled by the tracon. But they could still communicate with me by radio because I was well within range of their repeaters. Um, so we, we, we were never without the extra eyes and ears. And on the altitude change, boom, I'm back on where they can see me on radar anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, like Jeb says, there's redundancy in here. There's uh, uh, some robustness to the system. Uh, you know, I mean, otherwise, we, we get bad weather every year. Uh, and through this time of the year, back and forth in different parts of the country, uh, if the system wasn't fairly robust, uh, they'd be having a lot more problems with managing traffic flow than like they did with the story in Atlanta, where traffic flow was interfered with briefly solely because the weather was unpen- impenetrable. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I'm not going there, weather. And you could even see the uh, flight aware track where the airplanes were coming up to the edge of the storm and turning around and going back out. All that time being handled by somebody. 
Yeah. And then when the weather moved through a little bit, you could see the flow going right to Hartsfield and boom, boom, boom. They were catching up with what had backed up yeah. as quick as the runway would accept them. I think I've seen that video. It is pretty cool to yeah. see how the flow goes. Um, you know, and, and what about flight service? Um, not not as critical in the same way as, as, uh, as uh, you know, flight ATC, but... But uh, but it is becoming more and more centralized. There are fewer points of that you know disruption that would be a big deal. Um, our, our friends at Lockmart um, they were in the news just recently because they their computer systems got hacked, right. and uh, at, and at first Lockmart was Lockheed Martin was not real forthcoming with what parts of their system were hacked, and I got wondering whether or not it had anything to do with flight service, and it appears not to have, but. Uh, but it could have. Um, if someone messing around with their system, you know, it could take these things yeah, that's, down. That's a, that's a different system. I mean, yeah. they, they, they manage it and operate it. But it's not like that's the same computer system that they're using to run their accounting. And whether stuff. or not it's Lockmarts is the point is there's a system that could get – that is very centralized that could be a target is my point. And, uh, you well, know. and it, it, it is some recent news stories have pointed out uh, – you know, all this centralized, decentralized, all this connections, uh, connecting with electronic devices and the use of computer networks to do so much of this work, whether it's centralized or decentralized, uh, is vulnerable to the really hardcore, uh, talented hack. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, the United States and some others are starting to consider the hacking of their national systems uh, to be an act of war and telling some of the countries where some of this has come from, you know, you're really risking something big here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with any of that on, on some several levels. Um, I, a couple of things. One, um, Lockmore has its fingers in so many little pies that, oh, uh, yeah. and big pies that uh, I kind of think that uh, – the flight service uh, system is is way down the list of a potential uh, uh, threat. Um, I guess. Secondly, um, yeah, we we need we need more reasons to go to war. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, have, <laughs> and it's been declared the same thing. Yeah, you know? and it's been defined as a uh, as a, an act of war recently, right? It's the last couple of days. The uh, yeah. who was it? The yeah. Pentagon or somebody came out and said, "Of okay, course, it was the Pentagon." But, yeah, you know, we now consider cyber, you know, attacks to. To could conceivably be an act of war that could be responded to by military action. That's exciting, huh? Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm looking for those little bitty bits and bite tanks that they're going to send in through the wires. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I don't Nanobots. Think that, Nanobots. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Skynet. Skynet. That's right. Okay. Yeah, man. Um, so we have no less than three, possibly even four items on the list. Related to the light squared uh, cell phone system here. Oh man, that's that, that's the gift that just keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, David, we, we, we would just follow the podcast right now. Yeah, I know, uh, David. You seem to be following this. You've posted all four of these items. Tell us what's the latest. So, light squared is the new technology cell phone company that wants to put up some what forty thousand towers that forty thousand transmitters that um, that. That many people believe will dramatically interfere with the GPS system. What's the latest? Well, I, I, I did a little blog item, which uh, was greatly appreciated. Seems to have gotten picked up by other other websites. Uh, 
when uh, Light Squared began running full page with color advertisements in the local newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, uh, boasting and crowing about the 14,000 jobs and the 14 billion investment and bringing necessary services to the rural areas and high-speed broadband and the wonders of 4G that it's going to spread like little fairy dust all across the country. Except that we know that their signal interferes with GPS. That's not a question that's established. Yep. The question is what to do about it. Well, so we've got a, uh, a working group that's working with the FCC, the GPS Industry Council, uh, and Light Squared to do some tests. Well, one of the things that came up recently was that the company doesn't really have a transmitter yet designed and functional that works at the power levels that they've planned for this network of 40,000 transmitters. So how are they going to do that test out in Nevada? Isn't that an interesting question? Yeah. They're doing, they're doing the tests, yeah. and they're seeing interference, and this is at half power. Oh, okay. Well, then full power at, won't be at a problem. Half power. Yeah. Right. Full power just make it that much easier. And it's just uh, Las Vegas, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just Las Vegas. Oh, that explains a lot now that you stop and think about it. <laughs> then, then on Capitol Hill's The Congress blog, uh, the Hill newspaper where lawmakers come to blog. Uh, this guy's not along. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the title of this episode. <laughs> I, I can't make this stuff up, man. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, the wireless competition by, and I'm sorry, sir, if I, if I don't pronounce this, Sanjeev Ayuja, okay. who is the uh, uh, high muckety muck. At Light Squared, let's see, it should say, oh, yeah, he is the chairman and CEO of Light Squared, who blogged about wireless competition and bemoaned how the old technology GPS supporters are, 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 are screaming and, 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 and carrying on and, and trying to uh, block progress that Light Squared's trying to scatter like fairy dust all across the country. Uh, never mentioning that so far their solutions have been for us to adapt, uh, for them not to do something different. Uh, didn't mention that the chess system that they're running don't even meet their own full power specifications and was one of the more entertaining snow blowings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeb. Thank you. Uh, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> that, I, that I've seen in a while. Uh, then we get from AOPA online, study, light squared network incompatible with GPS. And this comes from people with actual, legitimate, neutral, technical expertise. And don't ask me to repeat that in that order. <laughs> The RTCA, which used to be the Radio Technical Commission yeah. for Aeronautics, they're the folks that the FAA and industry turns to to help create standards for equipment that can coexist with other equipment. Mm -hmm. And in a summary of their report from May 26, they stated a conclusion that elements of the cellular network proposal by Light Squared are, quote, incompatible with aviation 
because of potential GPS signal interference. It added that modifications could be made to allow the light squared system to coexist with aviation use of GPS. Well, and I'm, I'm fine with that. If they can modify it, good. But if they're coming to me and Jeb and you and all of us GPS users in aviation, in surveying, in uh, uh, truck delivery, in utility maintenance and selling us that we've got to pay to adapt so that they can coexist, uh, I got a deep dark place that they can stick their head. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't freaking think so. Um, I'm looking. GPSWorld.com is 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 uh, a website that, uh, as the name implies, kind of monitors uh, developments in this industry. There's several others out there, but I'm looking at a uh, a story on that site uh, dated yesterday. Headline is John Deere colon massive light square interference with no solution in sight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll read, the, I'll read the lead paragraph here. Deere and Company, a major provider of precision agricultural equipment and services, notified the Federal Communications Commission on May 26 of substantial interference with its GPS receivers by the light squared signal. Deere receivers registered impact of an interference by the light squared signal as far as 22 miles from a transmitter. Further, these are ground-level systems. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, come in. Yeah, yeah. these are ground-level systems. These are not airborne systems. These, these you know, they're, they're, they're uh, I, would, I don't know, you know what grade they are, but I would guess they're certainly not aviation-grade uh, receivers. Uh, Deer met with an FCC legal advisor to report on this analysis of recent New Mexico tests. New Mexico tests. Now we're doing it in New Mexico and uh, Nevada. Right. Uh, we're, moving, we're moving east, guys. Um, um, the, one of the, the uh, give me sentences here. Um, um, let's see, uh, uh, paragraphs here. Uh, in the course of its technical analysis, the company's engineers have determined that there is currently no practicable technical solution or solutions in combination available to avoid or substantially mitigate interference from light squared base stations to Deere's existing precision GPS system and to similar systems operated by others particularly in the agricultural and construction businesses industry. Um, gee, um, you think aviation might be affected? You think transportation might be affected? You think uh, uh, just consumer-grade GPS is going to be affected? This, this thing is, is, is really way beyond just aviation. And I, think well, it, one, one I, I want to read a paragraph from, from the chairman and CEO of Light Squared's comments on Uh, The Hill blog, where lawmakers come to blog. Quote, 30 years ago, the global positioning system, GPS, dramatically improved the way the world communicates. Huh? By using broadband spectrum. Suddenly, that's broadband spectrum. I thought that was GPS spectrum. Anyway, using broadband spectrum to signal precise location information. This guy can't even explain how it works correctly. However, some receivers manufactured the, the snow is getting these. deep. Yeah, it it really is. I got boots on this morning. However, some of the receivers manufactured to capture these signals also capture the new broadband network signals, creating the possibility of interference. The GPS industry has used this issue as a basis for a campaign to block further development of this new network. Well, fracking duh. Yeah. What's uh, to be done? Those, right, so those, those receivers, particularly the airborne units, have to meet very precise technical standards, very precise technical standards, which they were built to 
certified and sold to the public. It's not that they capture signals that they weren't intended to, sir. It is that your signals impose themselves on these receivers as they weren't intended to. And that's because you picked the wrong damn place to put your broadband network. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's time to pull the plug, sir. Pull right. the plug. No. Get out before you spend another million or a billion. There, there's a lot more going on here than than uh, than that, and, and if it had if it was um, as easy as just telling Light Squared no, uh, then it would have been done some time ago. As I understand this uh, thing, Light Squared's um, technology is designed uh, to be, to bring the the four G uh, uh, bandwidth um, to remote areas of the country. And some of that is is uh, part and parcel of uh, relatively new policies designed to expand, uh, for very good reasons, very sound reasons, uh, broadband uh, into remote areas, such as not, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, where I live. Um, but um, since that's policy on, on a national scale, um, the FCC... Um, basically rubber stamped without a whole lot of thought and perhaps not a little arm twisting uh, Light Squared's uh, purchase of, of or acquisition I should say of the appropriate bandwidth which as I understand it is just below the GPA yeah. I, I think signal bandwidth um, and, well, it- uh, um, and um, what they've done FCC is, is famous for sticking their foot in stuff lately uh, but what they've essentially done here is created a, uh, a very embarrassing political situation for themselves. Yeah. And um, uh, not coincidentally, um, for an, uh, a number of other uh, organizations and uh, industries where uh, they have to go to the FCC for various things. They can't be just pounding on the table all the time saying, you morons, you've got to fix this. Although they are morons, and yes, they do have to fix it. Well, uh, it- Go ahead. This this goes back years. Okay, sure. this foobar started about five years ago, and according to some information that I've read and a couple of feature stories, the original plan for this network was going to be entirely satellite based with just a few ground repeater stations. When it kind of showed up that that really wasn't going to work the way they wanted to, so they were going to use supplemental transmitters. On the ground, well, supplemental forty thousand is not supplemental. Forty thousand is backbone level, with just a few satellites to help trade information and coordinate everything. So it's kind of flipped from being a satellite idea to being a ground-based system. But they're still using what was satellite spectrum to do it, but bringing it down to ground level and increasing the power exponentially to make it work. Hey, listen, and I, I think they're we, expecting us to be the ones to ad- adopt. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry, but no, uh, this screwed up started back in 06 or so. Uh, like Jeb said, I agree. It, it's a laudable goal to bring broadband out in rural areas where it isn't now. It's a laudable goal to have cell service where it isn't now. But that shouldn't come at the expense of very well-established multiple critical uses of the existing GPS spectrum 
uh, because this company has invested a couple of billion already and wants to invest more. Uh, they've got to rework it. They've got to come up with a different plan. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hey, I, I think we've covered this and, and we have to move on here. Um, so, uh, but is there anything to be done about this? Is there anything that we mere mortals can do? Is this the kind of thing that we can talk to our legislators about? Or, or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, okay. You can, you can talk to your lawmakers. Some of them have weighed in already, quite a number of them, actually. Uh, you can uh, send comments to the Federal Communications Commission. Be kind mm-hmm. when you do. Even don't if they use don't the kind of language that's running around in our brain right now uh, and tell them that it's time to acknowledge that they made a mistake and back out of it. And, you know, the investors, well, that's why they call it investing. Yeah. It's always a risk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah we, believe it or not, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here, um, given that I kind of have to get to work sometime soon. Uh, anything else on this list that you don't want to skip over? I got one real quickie. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, I, David. Uh, I, I, I was intrigued to get a press release from uh, the folks in Curacao uh-huh. this week, flogging their plans to start space tourism service. And I believe 2014. Okay. Yeah. January 1, 2014, the long-held dream of mankind to enter space and thereby observe our beautiful Earth from high above will become reality for the larger public at the beautiful Caribbean island of Curacao. Uh, they're putting in their own spaceport uh-huh. and their own suborbital uh, operation uh, that's going to cost less than half of what Sir Richard uh, Branson is asking for uh, Virgin Galactic, which I, I believe is 200k, uh, this one will only cost you about 95, and they are taking reservations. Cool. That's what I was going to ask. It's suborbital at this time. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, these are all suborbital. No, I know Branson is. I was just wondering if Curacao was. Curacao yeah. was. Um, and, and the and the really great thing about that is they have these really cool umbrella drinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jeb, anything before we before we close um, out here? Uh, real quickly, um, here we are on on June three. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I checked, and uh, all that is you know very fairly unremarkable uh, um, date, except for of course for you know National Donut Day, uh, which is is you know today or tomorrow or something like that. But anyway, um, one of the things that uh, we have to remind people uh, this time of year is. Uh, in in less than eight weeks, eight weeks, guys, there's a little thing called AirVenture that's popping up somewhere I've up heard in of that. Uh, Wisconsin. It's called Oshkosh, Wisconsin, I believe. Um, many many people listening to the sound of my dulcet tones um, certainly know about it. Uh, many of you have perhaps thought about getting up there. Now's a great time to be making some plans. If you haven't already, um, get out there, get the notum, get some skills brushed up in the airplane, uh, start packing, think about what you want to take, think about what you don't want to take. Um, if you haven't uh, even thought about trying to get up there, um, use this as a reminder, use this as a, uh, a gentle nudge uh, to get your hoo-hahs uh, up there and uh, um, do the, now's a good time to make the plan. Yeah, so, come up and go. join the fun. That's right. And if you go to the EAA site, uh, AirVenture.org, 
Uh, I believe advanced tickets are still on sale uh, yeah, at a discount. Yeah, at a discount. The, you can still buy them uh, at a discount, I believe. But I think that window is closing soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've even created a way to, uh, to do some advanced work on, on camping. Uh, that you could check out there. And as the young man with the dulcet tone said, get the no tan. Get the no tan. Yeah. Get the well, no and, and even if, even if uh, you're tired of my dulcet tones and, and even if uh, uh, you're not going to fly yourself in, even say you're going to drive yourself in or you're going to airline in or, or, or some other means, um, you might need a place to stay if you're not going to camp. Um, the AirVenture website also has information on lodging. Uh, has information on uh, uh, other things to do in Oshkosh when the wife and kids are tired of looking at airplanes. You're not. Um, check it out. Um, get Make some plans. Pull it all together. We'll see you there. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to do a bunch of things. We'll talk more about that in a future episode, but we are going to have a presence there at, uh, at Air Venture this year. You are? Oh, you're coming too. I, oh, cool. I am. Oh, cool. Outstanding. If you've ever done any hangar flying... What's that? You know, sitting with friends at the airport... Talking about whatever they were talking about. Then meet some new flying friends on the radio. Um, okay. Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast, will take the microphone of EAA Radio twice during AirVenture. Why didn't you tell us about this? Put an ad in the local paper. Producer Jack Hodgson. Right. Journalist Dave Higdon. Uh, yeah, again. And journalist Jeb Burnside. You are correct, sir. (laughs) And some of their friends will be, uh, well... This is a virtual hangar flying podcast right right that should not be a criminal offense you can hear the monday night after the air show about six o'clock get that uh-huh yeah and sunday morning at 9 30 rush right out and buy that one too but what is so interesting about this it is delightful well, it's what we promised everyone and so it recharges the batteries oh well, that's an idea uncontrolled airspace monday and sunday on eaa radio that'll be cool looking forward to it National Donut Day. According to Wikipedia, uh, the free encyclopedia, <laughs> National Donut Day is on the first Friday of June each year. Ta-da! There we go. That's today. Ding, ding, uh, ding, ding, ding. Give that man a donut hole. It is uh, it succeed, it's succeeding, uh, or succeeding, I guess, um, the Donut Day event created by the Salvation Army in 1938 to honor the women who served donuts to soldiers during World War I. Uh, it ha- it's, it's, the holiday celebrates the donut, and Wikipedia actually goes on to describe what a donut is, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, National Donut Day started in 1938 as a fundraiser for the Chicago Salvation Army. Their goal was to help the needy during the Great Depression and to honor the Salvation Army's lassies of World War I who served donuts to soldiers. There's more. That's at uh, wikipedia.org. So, so, so put down that bagel. And go get a crawler. That's right. Chocolate frosted is mine. Absolutely. It might, yeah. No, ma- maple frosted. Ah, there we go. There we go. Well, I have to say that when we do the podcast in the morning, it has a very different vibe than the ones that we do in the evening. I think we'll leave it to the listeners as, well, as to whether this is better or worse. I don't know. But uh, I, 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 have, I have two words. Bloody Mary. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you, boys, for getting up early. I appreciate it uh, for accommodating me on my hey, travel. Thank and, you for getting up early. Yeah, that's, right. uh, that's Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, uh, 
a couple of other places and, and even some places that uh, they don't use my name, so I can't talk about them. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, uh, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where are you on the Internet these days? Uh, JEBurnside.com, uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, uh, AEA.net, uh, sometimes, sometimes AvWeb.com, or just use the Google. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information, thank you, thank you. for information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the uh, new improved blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Go fly. Live long. Because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. A donut may, but not flying. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. I got to go get donuts. Bye. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.